The middle of the 20th century saw the United States, the Soviet Union, Cuba, and other world powers in the middle of a Cold War. A time of intense geopolitical tension when it seemed like at any moment the world could break, when one country or the other would launch their missiles and doom the planet to nuclear destruction. Cuba took the center stage in 1961, when the country, still finding its footing from a revolution and new military dictatorship, was invaded by a brigade of counter-revolutionaries. The Cuban army met the invasion head-on, and within only three days, the counter-revolutionaries had surrendered, and Fidel Castro's position as a national hero and world leader was secured. But it was the men behind the curtain, the secret forces behind the invasion, the ones who had paid for the weapons and recruited the counter-revolutionaries, who had bigger consequences yet to face. You are listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 79, The Bay of Pigs Invasion. This episode is part of a larger series about world revolutions and is the first in a mini-series about the Cuban Revolution. Okay, Tyler, our getting to know you question today is what is the most famous movie that you've never seen? Surprise me with a movie that's not on your wa- ha- have seen list. There's so many. Um, the one that's coming to my mind, I can't think of anything else right now, though, is the beloved Christmas movie. It's a Wonderful Life. You've never. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's the, the reaction that is, of course, going to happen, but I can't believe that. Yeah, I've never seen it. Somehow, it never crossed my path when it was like on TV every Christmas Eve. I never, never sat down to watch it, and I still have not done so. I'm sure that it's really good, but I don't know. I haven't had a reason to see it. As you've probably heard before, it's really not a Christmas movie. Like, its connection to Christmas is just kind of it's kind of loose. Yeah. yeah, and so it's not, you don't need to wait to Christmas to watch it. I would highly recommend that you watch. It's okay. It's yeah. a nice movie. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that is surprising. I think when I was a kid, I was averse to it because it was black and white. Sure. Which now I'm like, I would love to watch a black and white movie. That's not like a deal breaker. <laughs> yeah. But now it's like, I don't know. You think of it as a Christmas movie. So then you do For think, sure. oh, I can only watch that in December. And then it comes by and you forget about it. You know? I totally get that. And you're not Jimmy Stewart averse, are you? No, not Jimmy Stewart averse. Because my. Uh, I appreciate my, his work in Rear Window. <laughs> oh, for sure. My wife is Jimmy Stewart averse. Oh, she doesn't like him? I don't know. I don't know if I've ever gotten a full explanation, but she's just like, yeah, I don't like him. I think she might have been because, um, you know, uh, It's a Wonderful Life is one of those movies that you can kind of get force fed a lot early on or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so I think she might have had a bad experience, like too much Stuart too early. <laughs> I can see that. And, you know, yeah. I wouldn't say that I'm like a super fan of him. I, he can come off kind of like, I don't know what it is about his quality, but I'm like, eh, you know, what like it is? I, I don't know. I can't put my finger on it, but I'm like, I don't necessarily love watching this guy. Do you know what I'm going to say right now? I'm going to say that he was the mid-century McConaughey. McConaughey. Oh, OK. 
Uh, um, like a very handsome, distinguished voice. Maybe in a, bunch a little of movies, and maybe a little too folksy for some people's liking. Maybe right? like, folksy, yeah. Huh? Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I've always and see, I'm the I'm the opposite. I'm like I have just such fond memories of old Jimmy Stewart movies. I I grew up watching a lot of old movies and TV, like to the point that my mother in law, she'll be like, I used to watch when I was a kid, and she'll be like, I'm sure you watched this, and I was like. I have. I don't know why I was watching <laughs> Green Acres as a child, ah. but I was. And uh, that's funny. So I have fond memories of of his movies, but my wife doesn't like him. Um, so there you go. Yeah. Yeah. All well, right. What's yours? So I have to emphasize that again. Tyler and I did not coordinate this in any way. <clears throat> But my answer is it can't be what's a, it's a wonderful life. No, 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 because no, I've seen it and I love it. <clears throat> but my answer is another pseudo Christmas movie. Oh, um, okay. and it is Die Hard. I've never seen Die Hard either. Okay. I yeah. feel like Die Hard's one of those ones that it gets <laughs> referenced so often. I mean, I know all of the references, I know all of the like the trivia. Yeah, the quotable lines. It's like you know, it comes up every year. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Yes. Um, Brooklyn Nine Nine, which is a NBC sitcom that I um, like, especially the earlier seasons. It like the main character is obsessed with that movie, and like whole entire plot arcs are like devoted to as like homages to Die Hard. And I've and I've just never seen it, and I feel <laughs> like uh, you know, at this point maybe it's too late. Maybe I'll never get around to it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, my, uh, my question is, is it good? I don't know the answer to that, but if it's good, I'd like to see it. I mean, it's often on people's best action movies. I think yeah. you know, it's, it's a, it's a great popcorn movie, but yeah, it's great. Great question. I'm not really sure, but how funny too? kind of, cause those are both often discussed as like pseudo Christmas movies. Like it's a wonderful true, life. Yeah. People say it's a Christmas movie, but it really has nothing to do with Christmas except for that. It's like, heartwarming it happens to take place at christmas time well it, it doesn't even take place i i think the final scene is vaguely christmasy but I, I don't even know if they like reference that like it's a christmas miracle like it's it's very oh, i didn't realize that okay yeah, so it's anyways it's like, at best yeah it's snowing and it's wintry but like yeah. so it's kind of a wintry movie but that's about it and uh and then die hard is nobody would ever think it was a christmas movie but people like to argue that it is because it takes place at christmas yes um, so <laughs> tonally it's a wonderful life is christmas but not technically and die hard is technically but not tonally so again i promise we didn't plan this at all um, it was meant to be we have a knack for running into that with these questions so for sure for sure did. yeah All right, so today we are returning to our uh, mega series on different world revolutions. Previously in the series, we have talked about the American Revolution, the English Revolution, and the French Revolution. And today we will switch gears and talk about a revolution that comes from the modern era with modern technology, and that is the Cuban Revolution. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really excited for this because I don't know anything about the Cuban Revolution. <laughs> so this is going to be a learning experience for me. Um, but like I said, I think a 
a cool thing about it is that this is from the 20th century, you know, mm. so we've been talking about pretty old events with our other revolutions, but how do you have a revolution once democracy has already been invented? <laughs> Cuba is going to teach us about that. Yeah. I also feel like um, the Cuban revolution, like some of the names the players and the events like um, Bay of Pigs, like we're talking about specifically today, sort of are, I mean, to call back to our um, get to know you question, there's sort of like that thing like, oh, yeah, I should have seen that by now. Like, I should know who exactly Che Guevara is. Like, I know the name yeah. and I know the face, like the face on the T-shirt. And I, I know I've heard of the Bay of Pigs. This is one of those historical events where I'm like, I should understand what this is. It's so often talked about. And so, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this, too. Um, it's also, um, for reasons we'll talk about as we keep going, I, f I find Cuba really interesting because it's so close to us. Like, it's... It's, it's our so, neighbor, right? It's our yeah. very close neighbor, but it's, um, it's, a, it's a world away in a, lot of, in a lot of ways, you know? Like, it's um, very different culturally, and it all goes back to, like, what we're talking about here. And so, yeah, this will be this will be way fun. The, the Cuban Revolution. And you and I have seen the fallout of the Cuban Revolution in our own lifetimes. Mm -hmm. You know, right. Fidel Castro was around for, I think, until we were young adults. Right. I don't even remember when he died. But yeah, he died in 2016. I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. It was like super recent. Yeah. So, uh, very tangible there. Yeah. So instead of, you know, with the other revolutions, we've told the story with linear narratives starting from the beginning. Uh, but with the Cuban revolution, we're actually going to start by telling a story from the end after the revolution had already happened. And that story is the Bay of Pigs invasion. And when I was in school, we called this the Bay of Pigs disaster. I don't mm -hmm. think that that's an uncommon name that you may yeah. hear about. Yeah. Uh, how well did you know about the Bay of Pigs invasion slash disaster before we researched this? Pretty well, but that's mostly um, it's it's like the event I kind of understand in Cuban history. I don't understand a lot of other stuff about the Cuban Revolution. Like you said, I'll be learning a lot as we research for these episodes. But the Bay of Pigs, I did understand. And that's because of its connection that we'll get to just the way that it intersects with American history. I find really fascinating um, so I, I think I kind of generally had, um, an idea, but, um, it's a really, really, for me anyways, this is a really fun time to be poking around in world history because so much interesting stuff was happening and oh yeah, um, <laughs> tons of implications for today, which I'm just, I'm so excited to talk about. I, I'm really excited. Uh, I didn't know anything about this. I think when we talked about this in school, I just kind of glossed over it or zoned out or whatever or i don't know maybe we didn't go into much detail um but here's the story of the bay of pigs invasion on the night of april 17th in 1961 an invasion force of over 1400 paramilitary personnel landed on the beach in cuba called playa huron in the bay of pigs this group was made of Cuban exiles who had opposed the Cuban Revolution, which we will eventually talk about, and they had opposed the rise to power of Fidel Castro. Upon invasion, they quickly overwhelmed a local militia in the area. However, they were pursued by the Cuban army, and 
their strategic initiative broke and the counter-revolutionary force um, lost out. They were defeated and they surrendered within only three days of the invasion. Most of the invaders were publicly interrogated and they were put into Cuban prisons. And this event, when it happened, was monumental for Fidel Castro's cause. It totally solidified him as a national hero. It showed the strength of his regime. And it sent a message to the rest of the world who was watching very closely the rise and fall of communist nations at the time. Kind of like horror movies at the theater, I think, speaking at least for Americans in the 1960s. Yeah, it was often compared to a virus, like... So oh, literally okay. like a like a movie, like a zombie movie or something like it's yeah. spreading and it's coming. It's in our neighborhoods. We just don't know it yet. <laughs> yeah. Right. But that was not the only reason that it shocked the world when this happened, because in the days that followed, the rest of the world learned the source of the invasion. And they learned that the Cuban counter-revolutionaries had not acted by themselves. Instead, the Cuban counter-revolutionaries had been given millions of dollars in equipment and resources, and they had been given this and actively recruited by the United States CIA. So Tyler has has, um, pulled the curtain back and revealed what at the time was they were trying to keep hush hush but is now common knowledge and so um you know to answer the question why did the u.s invade um the dude in a with horn-rimmed glasses standing behind a cia podium would have said we didn't and looked around nervously hoping everyone believed him (laughs) you know in, in in 1961 um but as Tyler said, it was, in fact, U.S.-led. It was funded, organized. These people were armed and trained and transported all um, by the U.S. Um, intelligence apparatus. And um, we were trying to cover our tracks. So I didn't want to spoil it earlier, just in case our listeners weren't aware. But this is kind of where my interests collide with this and why I knew about it. Um, we actually have talked in the in the past on the podcast in our uh, Project Azorian episode, which is one of my favorites that we've done. I think that's yeah, so that. cool. Yeah. Um, so that's a, a CIA mission from this time for, period that's just bonkers. And if if you need a good time, go watch or go read, you know, any of the many uh, wiki articles about, oh, this was a named uh, CIA had a named project between 1950 and 1980 like it's gonna be a good time to read about (laughs) some really interesting things some really unethical and horrifying things just really interesting stuff so that's kind of how i heard of this um just as kind of a sort of a frame of reference also if you never really dived into the dived dovin dovin into this it's definitely it's definitely not dovin anyway (laughs) you've never immersed yourself in this like um like if you watched stranger things or whatever like the kind of shadowy cia mind experiments that are depicted in shows like that didn't as far as we know actually bring to pass you know teleportation and all of that stuff and demogorgons but we were trying to (laughs) (laughs) like we had there was a whole cia project where they brought in hip uh not hypnotists um um like fortune tellers and um like 
people who what's the word i'm looking for um anyway like we also, have, i think we have to make an episode about we're MK gonna have ultra, to right yeah, M- mk ultra um i think it was called project unicorn anyway all sorts of crazy stuff so that's that's kind of where <laughs> my my um my interests have crossed over with this before and i was thinking about as i knew i was going to discuss this it's kind of it's going to be fun to talk about so why did the u.s invade let's talk about it almost like a like a crime in in the context that um people talk about okay we got to prove that this person committed this crime or let's analyze their commission of this crime as far as you need somebody to have means motive and opportunity right if you're watching law and order they'll talk about that like Mm -hmm. were they able to do it did they have a chance to do it and why would they want to do it and we can answer you know we can talk about um why the u.s did this in in those contexts so first let's start with motive and the motive was communism the revolution the cuban revolution had recently ousted the military dictatorship the previous government in cuba who was led by a guy named fugilencio bautista um if anybody out there is having a baby in the future might i recommend fugilencio as a name (laughs) i haven't met many in my life um so bautista is out that's what the revolution had accomplished and a 32 year old lawyer named fidel castro takes over in 1959 as prime minister um if anybody's listening to this podcast because they're fans of 32 year old lawyers that's why they're listening to me talk right now (laughs) then you are in luck because we're going to talk about another 32 year old lawyer so young man my literally our exact age and he seizes power and is has these radical ideas and he takes over um, but the whole operation was kind of spearheaded by Fidel Castro, his brother Raul, and um, a guy named Che Guevara, who you've probably heard of or seen posters of in a stoner's dorm room. Um, and so people you've heard of, and it's it's an exciting story that, you know, that the reason we're talking about Bay of Pigs now is to give context for that whole movement that we'll talk about later. But Castro was in power. After he took power, he went on like a goodwill tour to kind of try and be like, my government's legitimate. I'm going to go meet heads of state and kind of solidify my place in the world order. And, you know, yeah, okay, we, we overthrew the government, but we're, we're legit. You know, we're not going to descend into some sort of, this isn't going to go back and forth and back and forth as, as, you know, overthrows often do. I'm a legit guy. So he goes around the world and meets with prime ministers and presidents and everybody. And he comes to the U.S. And Eisenhower, um, says i won't meet with him i'll send my vice president but i'm not going to meet with him you know in, in kind of a, a recognition or or a, a kind of um a way to show that we don't approve of the spread of communism we wish this guy wasn't in power um we're gonna you know reluctantly acknowledge that that he, he is the leader of cuba but you know we're not happy about this and so instead of eisenhower going to meet him Nixon, Vice President, um, one day, um, President Richard Nixon is the one to meet with him. And afterwards, he said this, um, something that was recorded. Um, And, you know, they were talking about, okay, what did you learn? What was it like? What are we going to do about this Castro guy and all of this? And this is what Nixon said. The one fact we can be sure of is that Castro has those indefinable qualities which make him a leader of men. Whatever we may think of him, He is going to be a great factor in the development of Cuba 
and very possibly in Latin American affairs generally. And I would say that Nixon aimed too low on that because I think that Fidel Castro is one of the, you know, uh, uh, one of the greatest factors in the 20th century world history, right? Like his influence went way beyond just Latin American affairs. Like he's kind of the face of, of communism in the 20th century in some ways, but Nixon was right. Um, or at least I think that's an interesting note from him. What we can be sure of is this guy has got it, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. People are going to follow him. And this was scary for America. Um, a young, powerful, charismatic Marxist Leninist. That's scary. And he's not 5,000 away, 5,000 miles away, you know, in, in Eastern Europe. He's barely a hundred miles from American soil. And that might, maybe that seems, I don't know if, if that idea feels silly to us now, like the proximity argument. Um, but that was a, re a really big deal. And the, the, the concept was the domino theory of communism, meaning as communism takes hold in one part of the world, the countries around it will fall like dominoes. They will be influenced by this, you know. Um, awful form of government and communism is going to take over the world. That was the, the fear of the United States at the time. And so, um, you know, I, I, I don't know, like I said, how we, how um, a modern mindset would take that. Like, well, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if Cuba's here or, or, you know, in on the other side of the world, the idea is really what matters. And that might be our attitude now with like, you know, the internet and mass distribution of ideas. Maybe we now discount proximity too much and we mm. don't think about the fact that it is really close because it does feel like the world is smaller now, right? Yeah, that's an excellent yeah. point. Um, but anyway, kind of interesting to think about. This was this was not, you know, academic for our parents. If you're mine, uh, Tyler's age, our parents, like my mom remembers hiding under a desk and doing nuclear strike drills in school and i she i've heard her tell me about she asked her dad they were like out doing chores and she said are the russians gonna invade and like, this was Aww. not not hypothetical right and so yeah. um and so the fact that this guy is like literally a, a people people can and have swam from american soil to cuban soil just by their own strength like this is yeah. literally a stone's throw away so we were afraid of that so that's the motive right we don't like this young dude who's in power um as far as means and opportunity for the means the u.s is at kind of its new height of power it's flexing its new muscles as leader of the free world if you want to think of it that way the world wars really propelled our economy and our military and just sort of our standing we we suddenly were at the top tier of world power where as you know in 1900 um we were very much a developing nation our we there was so much that we lacked you know when compared to these other places but by 1960 we were very clearly you know a, a, a top dog if not the top dog and so um that's kind of our our means. We had the ability to do this. Our military had been honed during those wars. Technology had advanced at an unbelievable rate. So in 1960, we had, you know, we were developing intercontinental missiles and we just had a, you know, a big standing army, all this stuff. So we had the ability to, you know, send troops, arm people, do this. Whereas in 1900, you know, maybe we could have mailed you some bolt action rifles, but 
Um, we were we were in a position we were, our economy was booming, et cetera. As far as the opportunity, there were people who were itching for a coup. Um, there were people who were disaffected with the Castro government. They didn't like that the revolution had taken place. They wished things were different. They didn't want Cuba to be communist, et cetera. And a lot of those people had fled the country and a lot of them had ended up in the United States. Um, and so you had this community, at least small or large, of people saying, yeah, you know, if I could just get my hands on that Castro guy, we could take our take our country back from communism. And the U.S. is very anxious to find those people <laughs> because they agree wholeheartedly and, you know, very anxious to find them and maybe arm them and support them and train them. And, you know, hey, if you need a ride on your way to go kill Castro, you know, we've got these boats <laughs> kind of a situation. Um, and so, of course, what could go wrong? And I'll just give you know, some, some examples as far as that goes. If we fast forward a little bit to the 70s, we were using the same basic playbook, right? And it, it's kind of axiomatic in the world of international relations. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so that was sort of what was going on here. Like we didn't really have any particular love for these Cuban people, except for the fact that they didn't like Castro. And so we were like, well, let's arm them and and, you know, train them in Guatemala and then ride on boats over to Cuba, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we were basically using that same strategy and in some ways still are today. But we were doing it in the 70s um, against the, the well, continued to against the USSR, the Russians, uh, the, those, those sneaky communists. And they were fighting this in a country. And we were like, well, great, we'll arm that country that Russia is trying to invade and you know do its business and what could go wrong so we indirectly but pretty clearly historically it's pretty clear that happened sent guns and whatnot to the people that the russians the soviets were fighting uh, a great group of folks now called the taliban <laughs> <laughs> so in the late 70s we were like hey taliban guys take all of this you oh, know wow. and of course that turned out to not be in our best interest because 25 years later we were you know, facing a, a Taliban that had been trained and armed in, in some capacity by the United States military. Uh, and I think that raises interesting questions because it's, you know, I'm not sticking my neck out that far to be like, the U.S. shouldn't have been involved in all of this meddling around the world. Like the Vietnam War wasn't popular at the time. It hasn't gotten any more popular since then, you know, and Vietnam is is another example of this domino theory, the U.S. trying to stop the spread of communism, whatever. So I'm not, I'm not making any bold claims here, but at the same time, I think there is wide popular support throughout most of the world and in the United States for arming Ukraine, right? Yeah. And, and in the current mm -hmm. conflict, it's like Ukraine is in the right here. Um, you know, the vast majority of people are like, we think Russia's done this, done, done Ukraine wrong. And so, yeah, let's send them missiles maybe. And so that feels way more justifiable um, when on paper, it's the same mistake we've made in the past. Um, you know, whether it's a mistake or not is not um, not really the point. It's just interesting that like it so clearly was like, man, what were we thinking? Why were we meddling yeah, there? Yeah. And then but then when it's a case today, which does feel there are differences. And we'll talk about that in our other current affair world politics podcast. Um, <laughs> but uh but it's just interesting that it's still happening today, right? It's like, well, we don't like that Russia did that. So let's send missiles to the other guys, yeah. you know. When that's so, always the mood, right? It's <laughs> yeah. like, that's the only reason to ever send the guns is because you're answering yes to that question. 
Right, right. right. And so, um, so that's kind of how and why the U.S. wanted to be involved and, and why we uh, got in there and, you know, tried to keep it hush-hush. But this is exactly why we wanted to use all of our fancy tools to let's stop this in our, literally in our backyard before communism gets out of control in, in, the, in the Americas. So why was the Bay of Pigs disaster a disaster? <laughs> uh, that is the question that we now have to try and answer. And this is a very technical question. I don't think that I am the person capable of answering it. Um, but we will try, given the resources um, that Wikipedia has provided. The invasion of the Bay of Pigs failed. And... At this point, I have to make an editorial note here, which is that if you go to the Wikipedia page, Bay of Pigs Invasion, it is extremely long. And if anyone from the Wikipedia team is listening to this, I would ask to please take a red pen to this Wikipedia page because I think it could use with a little bit more editing. Uh, it's a little hard for me personally to follow all the details. But you know what? Those of you out there who are... Um, super interested in military strategy and the specific ins and outs of the battles. Maybe you disagree. Maybe you'll find a lot of uh, good detail in there. Yeah. We're kind of, uh, we're kind of beggars and choosers on this because we uh, obviously love and use Wikipedia a lot, but I, as far as I know, neither of us go on and make edits or changes. <laughs> no, we don't. We just gripe yeah. about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh, you can never, right? Like you said, beggars can't be choosers. Um, regardless, the invasion was a failure. And we know that because the uh, re counter-revolutionaries were imprisoned and the U.S. was quickly exposed as having been involved in the process. Um, when at first the U.N. started to question what was going on in Cuba, the U.S. ambassador denied the charges, and he said, I dismiss this categorically. We were not involved at all. He was lying, <laughs> um, and he was lying because it was clear that the invasion had very embarrassing consequences politically. It did not look good, not only for the U.S. to do this kind of sneaky send in a revolution thing, but also to try that and lose was not great. And as we said before, this really solidified uh, Fidel Castro's position as a revolutionary leader and a national hero of Cuba. In a press conference, John F. Kennedy took a lot more of the blame than I think the average leader would do. And he cited the old saying, he said, victory has a hundred fathers, but defeat is an orphan. And I think he was quick to uh, try and jump in and say, I'm not going to make this an orphan. It is. <laughs> I am the president, so I am responsible for this. Che Guevara um, had his own opinions on the Bay of Pigs disaster. He said, thanks, Kennedy, for Playa Hiron. Before the invasion, the revolution was weak, and now it is stronger than ever. <laughs> so wow. he was quick to come down on the side of, yes, this was a, indeed a disaster for the U.S., well, again, we hear very similar things about like NATO and Ukraine, like, mm -hmm. you know, people say Putin's really stepped in this because it's strengthened 
NATO and everyone is rallying around Ukraine. Yeah, that yeah. He probably didn't, you know, Zelensky's like a hero to people. And it's like, yeah. it really strengthened Ukraine in some ways in your effort to weaken it. So it's kind of interesting in that way. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but whether or not Kennedy was really to blame, uh, the fact remains is that the plan had been set out by Eisenhower's administration. So some some details of this were just inherited by Kennedy. He didn't ask for them. Um, and Eisenhower had a different plan than Kennedy ultimately executed. Eisenhower's plan called for extensive naval and air support. And without that naval and air support, the plan was not going to succeed. But in the middle of it, instead of sending the boats and the planes, Kennedy said, we're not sending those. So that is part, <laughs> that's probably most of why Kennedy is blamed for the invasion going south is because he decided not to send those resources. Uh, Raul Castro himself, brother of Fidel Castro, blamed Kennedy the most for the disaster, or in his case, he was glad to see it. Raul said, Kennedy vacillated. If at that moment he had decided to invade us, he could have suffocated the island in a sea of blood and destroyed the revolution. Lucky for us, he vacillated. Which, I mean, that that has to just be, like, p- provably true, right? Cuba's really small. Their military yeah. couldn't have... W- and it's so close to the U.S., you know, we had planes we could be launching from our mainland and so you know that was the sort of dance they had to do was like well we don't want to just invade it we want it to look like somebody else is doing it you know so yes yeah (laughs) kind of like not be heavy-handed with it and keep our fingerprints off of it kind of spelled its its doom i guess i think that's a very good point you can imagine how there was a conflict of um what's it called of like well, it was like a conflict of mission, right? Like Eisenhower had one vision or a conflict of vision, let's say. So Eisenhower had one vision for how it was going to go and Kennedy had a different vision. And maybe if it had just been a singular vision, it would have been fine. Um, but I think that is a good point. And imagine if you were a counter-revolutionary and you had been in the locker room before and they had pointed on the chalkboard and they're like, yeah, okay, so you go here and then the uh, planes and the boats are going to come pick you up and then you go keep going. And then you get to where you need to go. And they're like, are the planes and boats coming? And they're like, oh, they didn't show up. Imagine how scary that would be if you were like (laughs) sent in to like fight a war. And they're like, oh, yeah, those planes and those boats, they're not coming. (laughs) Well, and I mean, there's the old saying, and I'm not going to get it right. But like, if you aim for the king, be sure that you don't miss. (laughs) Yeah. Uh You know, so it's not like this was just a battle where you didn't have your all of your tools which is bad enough but it's also like it's so clear what we're up to here that as soon as if it doesn't go exactly the way we planned we're yeah yeah, we're gonna all be rounded up and we're in huge trouble if it works then we're heroes or whatever but like yeah if you're if you're going for (laughs) to overthrow the government you really need to make sure you follow through yeah definitely um I, i think an interesting thing about the bay of pigs disaster is that I don't know, maybe this was just my reaction, but I immediately reading about this was like, oh, we got to question the ethics, right? Like, is it ethical for the U.S. to get involved? Is it you know, even appropriate for tax dollars to be spent on 
somebody putting down a revolution in a different country like what's that what's that about you know um but at the time that was not the question that was being drawn up and really there was a lot more emphasis especially by the press and um, internal cia reporting about the actual failures of the plan and so it wasn't the question wasn't should we be doing this but the question was what went wrong and how could we have actually <laughs> done this correctly hmm. um so there was a report that was drawn up about the invasion and it was kept classified until 1998 and then it was released um but it was used internally at the cia before then and it formed a couple of conclusions about the failure so it said the following the cia exceeded its capabilities in developing the project from guerrilla support to overt armed action without any plausible deniability. It had a failure to realistically assess risks and to adequately communicate information and decisions internally. It had insufficient involvement of leaders of the exiles, failure to sufficiently organize internal resistance in Cuba, failure to competently collect and analyze intelligence about Cuban forces, poor internal management of communications and staff, insufficient employment of high quality staff, insufficient Spanish speakers, training facilities and material resources, and lack of stable policies and or contingency plans. Now, I know that's a lot of words all at once, but that is an insane list yeah. of things that went wrong that really should not have been going wrong. Like, I'd like to see the list of things that went right. And it'd basically be like, the boats worked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we turned the key on the boat and it started. <laughs> it had plenty of gas and we yeah. were there just fine. <laughs> but like insufficient Spanish speakers, that seems like day one, right? Yeah. Poor yeah. internal management of communications. Somebody's not sending an email. Failure to collect intelligence. I mean, that's like what you're supposed to be doing lack of a contingency plan i remember president baldwin you always have to have an exit strategy <laughs> yeah. and that's true you got to have an exit strategy yeah i mean this is kind of a nightmare list of things to go wrong like well we weren't communicating and we didn't know enough about where we were going and we didn't really have realistic plans it's like those are all the things <laughs> all, that should have been like yeah we should have it should have been like much smaller details. And these are just such big picture things that are getting lost. Yeah. So uh, multiple executives in the CIA were forced to resign as a result. Remember this report is private internally at the time. So it, it wasn't that they were finding, um, you know, public pressure to resign. This was all internal. The executives objected to the study and its findings, but they nevertheless resigned a handful of people at the top. And a really curious thing here is that the CIA's behavior in 1961 has been now cited as an example of groupthink in psychology. And I had never really heard about this before, but groupthink is a psychological phenomenon where a group of people will act irrationally because they are very concerned about maintaining harmony and conformity in the group. Does that make sense? For sure, yeah. Like, no one wants to be the bad guy, so they end up doing the thing, and 
it, it fails. You know, my parents would say no one wants to ring the hootie bell on the plan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you're not ringing the hootie bell, then the plan is going to happen. And then it's like, well, we all saw that it was bad. Why didn't anybody say anything? You yeah, know? it's kind of related to the idea of like a bubble, right? Like, well, yeah. I'll- we're all just saying or an echo chamber like everybody <laughs> at the cia is like well this is obviously going to work for these reasons so you kind of just accept that group that group you know motto of okay this is going to go fine but anybody from the outside would be like this doesn't seem like a good <laughs> yeah imagine you start your first day on the job at the cia you go into the meeting and you see the cuban revolutionaries and you're like oh cool what's the plan and the guy's like uh, I don't know. We actually don't speak Spanish here. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh, uh, okay. No, you got to speak up, right? You got to yeah, say something. Sure. So um, part of uh, part of what probably contributed to it as well. So how much did Kennedy have to do with it? How much did he not have to do with it? I think that's in the weeds. I think we would have to read a lot closer and comb through the details to get there. Hmm. Sure. But um, that's the Bay of Pigs invasion and disaster. And it had tremendous effects on not only Cuba's status on the world stage, but also the United States and the Cold War in general. This point in history, by the way, is considered to be the height of the Cold War. And from what I know of the Cold War, I can imagine that to be true, right? Where tensions were building throughout the 1950s. Everybody's worried about something that's going to happen and then nothing ever does. Yeah. And this was actually a tangible thing that did happen. They tried to revolt against the Cuban government and they failed. Right. Yeah. People, there were actual guns and hands and people shooting at each other. Yeah. And, you know, another event that this kind of led to, which maybe we'll discuss at another time, but is the Cuban Missile Crisis, which (laughs) was a result of this. I mean, Cuba was kind of just like, look, we want to be Marxist Leninists now and uh, do our thing. And, you know, the the kind of account you get now is like they were pretty they kind of wanted to be chill about (laughs) this. And then all of a sudden these people show up on their beaches carrying like made in USA guns kind of a situation. And Mm -hmm. they're like, wait a second. And this really kind of in some ways radicalized or militarized the, um, the kind of posture of Cuba. And it's what led to them cozying up way more to the, to the Soviets and to them eventually being like, Oh yeah, Soviets, if you want to park a bunch of your missiles here and point them at, Mm -hmm. DC and Chicago and New York and Miami and, you know, Raleigh, all these cities, you can do that if you want. And like, you know, um, Corbin McCarthy says there are no control groups in history, so we can't really know. But like, if this hadn't happened that, you know, it seems at least possible that, yeah, they Cuba never would have had those missiles and it never would have escalated so much if we kind of just left it alone or on the other side of it, the other, you know, experiment we can't run is what if we really had just crushed it what if we had just yeah. sent like u.s marines and we had just overtaken the island and we're like no communism in cuba um that would have been interesting <laughs> like yeah. what would have been the world's communist response would that have only further fanned the flame of communism in central and you know in, in the americas would it have quashed it would that have led to direct conflict with Russia, you know, who knows, but this is, it is such an interesting kind of inflection point where like, you know, we, 
it's all of the tensions on the table all at once. And like I said, people finally had guns in their hands. And so it, mm-hmm. it's, it really is kind of a high point of 20th century tension in that way. And just sort of the perfect little, little spot to zoom in on if you're looking at the cold war and, you know, America's terror at the spread of communism. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I don't know, Race, how much of a conspiracy believer you are, but there are many people who I think would argue that if not for the Bay of Pigs invasion, then John F. Kennedy may have never been assassinated. Uh. And I'll leave a little spooky dot, dot, dot there. But (laughs) I don't find that to be completely unpersuasive. I think that's a good case to be made. Hmm. Oh, we could do that. Could be another great series we do is on presidential <laughs> on assassinations. Oh yeah, I mean, there's the Stephen Sondheim there's musical, the musical that we yeah. can use as source material. Yeah. Oh man, put that on the long list of stuff we'll get to eventually. Very much on the long list. <laughs> but yeah, that's the Bay of Pigs disaster. And next up in our little series on the Cuban Revolution, we're going to now rewind at this point taking a look at the early history of Cuba and the events that led up to the revolution. And then the moment when it finally went into revolution and Fidel Castro came to power. Our one footnote today is that the name of the Bay of Pigs, which itself is such a striking name that it begs you to read about it, could very well be a large reason for why the press surrounding the event really took off. I always imagined pigs swimming in the ocean, and indeed the name in Spanish, Baya de los Cochinos, does literally mean Bay of Pigs. However, Cochino is also the Spanish name for a type of fish called the Queen Triggerfish, which is a resplendent rainbow-colored fish that inhabits the coral reefs in the region. Thanks for listening. Join us next time as we continue in our series about the Cuban Revolution. We'll rewind a little bit and start at the very beginning. We'll see you next time.